Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's a difficult time to really feel free as a comedian, but I still do. Welcome to Varvet International. This is Kristoff Triumph, your host. I'm in Sweden, but never mind me. Let's talk about Jeff Garlin. I know that some of you listeners have waited for this, and this is the downside of my working process, that uh, some of the interviews are a few months old when they hit your eardrums, but I honestly don't think you'll notice. So anyway, Jeff Garlin is one of America's most beloved comedians and have been so for a very long time, and just like my guest from episode 13, Larry Charles, the TV hit series Mad About You was sort of important for their careers in the late 90s. Larry was the producer slash showrunner, I think, and Jeff was in the cast. We won't really go into his work in detail, but I can uh, recommend the episode of WTF with Mark Maron that Jeff Garland did. It's very fascinating to hear these two comics dwell on their friendship through the 80s and 90s and to hear Jeff explain how he met with Larry David and how Curb Your Enthusiasm came about and so forth. Oh yes, Jeff Garland is a regular and co-creator of that wonderful TV series that started back in year 2000 starring Larry David. And since 2013, Jeff Garland is a regular on the Goldbergs, an ABC sitcom, and he resides in LA where he also did his very entertaining podcast, by the way, in conversation with Jeff Garlin. But uh, let's just roll the tape now. From my friend Peter's apartment on King's Road in West Hollywood, this is my conversation with Jeff Garlin. How did you react when you heard that Mark Maron was going to do the president? I was impressed. Were you happy for him? Yeah. For the president or for... Oh, for Mark Marin? Yeah. I was happy yeah. for both of them. I was a little taken back at the thought of the president in his garage. Yeah. I liked his garage. I think it's a nice garage. <laughs> yeah. But I just thought of the president in the garage. And I... Th- you know, the president... This president, I feel, takes risks. So... And without knowing the other presidents very well, mm-hmm. I would assume that he's the most garage-compatible one. Garage-compatible? I don't think of him as even garage-compatible, even as compared... Maybe more than George Washington, our first president, yeah. but I don't think of uh, Barack as garage-compatible. No, I don't even I... think of myself as garage-compatible. <laughs> I don't like going into garages. <laughs> So generally at home, when I go into a garage, it means there's some work to be done, and 
I don't want to do that. Okay. You don't keep cars in your garages? I have one car in my garage, Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. It seems like you are pretty well off economically, right? Economically? Yeah, I'm well off. Yeah. Yes. That's nice. It is nice. Yeah. Because I spent many years of my life not being well off. Yeah. It is uh, quite nice in comparison. Do you come from money? So to no, speak? no, I do not. No. I grew up uh, in what was called the middle class, varying to upper to lower, depending on what was going on with my dad. But I was never lower class or upper class. I heard you say somewhere that your grandfather was in, like, in plumbing. Yeah, you know, we, we had a plumbing supply business. Yeah. But did your father go into that business as well? He was in that business for a while until my grandfather sold it. When my grandfather moved to Florida. Okay. And he sold the business, which my dad didn't want him to do, uh-huh. but he did. And the business ended up making millions for somebody else. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. When you guys moved to Florida, at yeah. your, why did you do that? You know what? I don't even really know. I don't know. I was very happy in Chicago, but I didn't have much say. I was 12 years old. I didn't have much say into what was going on. I know it was, uh, culturally, it was quite different for me, but I, I, I didn't, uh, nah, I was good with it. Back to Mark Maron again. I, Let's go back to yeah. Mark Maron again. Because I, I... I like an interview that jumps around. Yeah. So I'm good. You go anywhere you want. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Sir. Because my first reaction was, even though my podcast is fairly small compared to his, right, and... Uh, even though I'm in Sweden, mm-hmm. I was sort of envious. Well, I, I wasn't envious because I've got, I've got really nothing to ask the president. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I really don't. I mean, I mean, certainly I have things to ask the president, but not... It would be a different kind of interview than what Mark did. Mine would be more in, in sort of a... Uh, the human condition and social and a lot less of... Policy. Yeah. I don't have much interest in policy. Would you have wanted him on Largo with you? Oh, my God. That'd be the... I can't think of a better interview at Largo, but it, but it would be conversational. Yeah. It would be really getting to the nuts and bolts of what it's like to be the president. That's what it would be if I had him at my show. Policy, that's not my area of expertise. I don't go into politics at all because it only gets me angry. It only throws me off my quest for wiseness and humility and uh, and kindness. And it goes against everything, all these policies. Policies change. Policies are a bunch of crap. I just get angry with politics. Then I have to ask you, who would you like to win the election next year? Well, I would have to say either Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Okay. It'd be kind of interesting to have someone like Bernie Sanders as president. And Hillary Clinton is sort of status quo to the slightly left. Bernie Sanders is more left, and I dig that. And then uh, the people on the right, most of them scare me. They scare me, especially Donald Trump. It really scares me. He's such a loose cannon. He's the only person that if they won... I might consider moving. Where would you move? Canada? Toronto. Yeah. Or maybe Paris or London. I don't know. It's just, you know, although I work here, so I probably couldn't. 
but it would make me embarrassed. That would be the big thing, embarrassment. And there's not a lot of things that make me feel... I would be, I'd be more embarrassed if Trump became president than if I were to walk naked through the streets of Los Angeles. Yeah. Can I also ask you, do you have a relation to this neighborhood that we are in? Uh, West Hollywood? Yeah. I used to live in West Hollywood, a few blocks away from here, Yeah. on a street called Sweetser. It's a great neighborhood. It's one of my favorites in uh, the Los Angeles area. It's also the great neighborhood because it's really centrally located more than any other place. I think the only other place that would be as centrally located might be Studio City, which is right over the hill from here. Mm. Yeah. All right, back to your childhood then. Okay, uh, let's jump around, man. Did you really decide to become a comedian at the age of eight? Yeah, I had it in the back of my head at the age of eight. I saw uh, Jimmy Durante, and uh, I was very intrigued. And I asked my parents if that was a job. They said it was a job. And I said, that's what I want to do. And he was a stand-up comedian. He was, well, he was a comedian. He was an entertainer. He was a film actor. He was a beloved person in this country. You can look him up on the internet, Jimmy Durante. There's lots of video and such. But watching him, watching people's reactions to him, it was pretty exciting for me. And I'd never seen anything like that. But also as a kid, I watched the Ed Sullivan show and any show that would have stand-up comics on it. I was completely intrigued by stand-up comedians. Completely intrigued. And it would bring me so much joy to watch them when they'd be interviewed on The Tonight Show or do stand-up on The Tonight Show. It was uh, something that I've always loved. And I loved watching The Honeymooners and... Sergeant Bilko and all these shows starring comedians. And uh, that was what I wanted to do. And then it took my friend's mom, Mrs. Siegel, I remember, in 1982. So I was 20, but she had been pushing me. She said, you really got to go for it. You really do. And so I went to an open mic night and I passed right away. Boom. And I was off to the races at 20 years old. I know that you are sort of improvisational. Yes. Uh, but did you write down jokes in the beginning? In the beginning, I wrote down jokes, what I was going to say. I would say that that would be quite difficult to just improvise from the get-go. Yeah. Because you don't even know what improvisation is. Of course. I had no idea what that was. Although I was enamored with SCTV, which was written, which is Second City Television, which is where I ended up going to learn about improv and such. But that's when I became more of an improvisational comedian. After I moved to Chicago from South Florida, back to Chicago, and I did Second City as well as stand-up, and the Second City aspect rubbed off on my stand-up. I'm actually, as a stand-up comedian, a product of Second City. I would like to talk about that, because it seems to be such a fantastic institution here. Mm -hmm. I can assure you that we don't have something like it in, in Sweden, anyway. Mm -hmm. Is it a school? They have classes there. They have uh, two or three stages, that, um, and also they go perform on the road. But they have lots of, they have, I don't know what they call it, their class system. When I was there, it was just classes. Okay. Beginner and advanced, that's all they had. Then they had levels, and I believe now they have, um, 
I don't know what they would call it, where they have lots of classes. And it's not a, but maybe it's a school of some sort. I don't know. But there's lots of classes there, mm. yes. Did you have to try out to become a... Yes, you had, yeah. to, uh, you had to audition. I went from working in the box office to being... It took a long time for me to being in one of the companies. Did you audition more than once? No. I actually never auditioned. Okay. They had a show... And they didn't have a cast for this one road gig. So they put together what they call Patch Co. Because they, they used to have Blue Co., Blue Company, Red Company. And then they were out. And so they had this gig that came up. And they put together a Patch Co., which means different people they've been looking at, different people they know, to do this gig. And they saw me during the rehearsal. I mean, they had known me, the producers. They saw me during the rehearsal, and I scored pretty big in the rehearsal. And then I was hired. If I would like to start a second city in Sweden, yeah. how do I teach? I mean, how do you learn? What did you do there? Well, you know, you there's a, a book. The woman who sort of wrote the book on improv, her name is Viola Spolin. I think you would just teach whatever that book said. Okay. And then you teach the games. You play the games, which helps you learn how to improvise. And then there's a book by Bernie Salins, S-A-H-L-I-N-S, by the way, about directing a Second City review. And between those two books, and there's another book about improv written by Del Close, who was a master of improv. Del Close, Howard Johnson, and Sharna Halpern. And those three books, I think, would get you to teach you what you need to know. I couldn't explain how. But the thing about Second City, I mean, it has, like, I don't know, perhaps 20% of the most successful comedians in the U.S. have gone there or something like that, right? Not stand-up. Stand-ups, it's a shorter list. It's uh, okay. I can tell you that it's David Steinberg, Robert Klein, myself... And I know I'm missing one or two. Uh, well, though he's not really known, Fred Willard's not known as a stand-up. But it's not really, but screen comedians, most definitely. Some of the most successful, John Belushi, Bill Murray, Steve Carell, lots of great, Mike Myers, you know, lots of great screen comedians. Have, have, uh, Tons of comedians, uh, successful yeah. people. Yes. Why is that? I think that Second City just attracts certain people. And then that's, I mean, you could say the same thing for New York comedians or L.A. comedians. It's like there's, um, I don't know that St. Louis would draw comedians, you know, to. So it's just a matter of the luck of the draw, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's not as much what Second City teaches as it is. That Second City, these talented people chose Second City. I might be the first person to say that. Yeah. Because people like to give Second City credit. And by the way, Second City's wonderful. But, you know, Steve Carell only gets better with Second City. I don't know that someone like Steve Carell could be stopped if he didn't do Second City. I mean, he's so brilliant. So it's sort of like perhaps Nashville with... Country music. Yeah. Why does so many... That's the home of country music. Second City, for the most part, is the home of improvisation, comedy improvisation, yeah. And if I would ask you to sort of verbalize what you took from there the most? Well, 
You know, I don't know if it's the same thing that other people take. You're supposed to, one thing with Second City is you're supposed to explore and heighten, like you explore what's going on and then you raise the conversation to to another level, like take something and then and try and make it more of it. But you're also supposed to try and make the other actor look better. That's the thing that I took. I don't know that anyone else took that. Because my style as an actor is, I'm going to make you look good. Now, if you're trying to make me look good, we both win. I work with actors sometimes not so concerned with the other person. You have to be concerned with making the other person look good and telling whatever story it is. That's what I took with it. Improvisation is, uh, I've realized that I have sort of been to improv classes and it is the art of helping, right? Because you Well, you have to. You yeah, can't, exactly. if you just take it on your own agenda, you just take it on your own, it's not going to go anywhere unless you're just doing it alone with stand-up. I mean, when I do stand-up, I, 98% of the time I go up and I improvise. I might tell a story that I've told before, which might, let's see if I'm doing 15 minutes, six minutes of it might be a story I've told before. And, uh, you know, nine minutes would be just whatever I'm thinking or feeling or exploring. But with your another actor on stage, you have to listen to what they say, look them in the eye and like, like I say, explore and heighten and also do everything you, in your power to make them look good. This is something that I've been trying to figure out in my podcast lately, because it seems like you have a genuine interest in other people. Yes, I do. Yes. And for actors, it seems like that... That's not the norm. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's not the norm amongst actors or comedians thinking about other people. But there are people who do look and think of other people, and then there are people who, uh, who don't. You know, it's all whatever journey you're on, or maybe they, they think about other people later on. I don't know. I don't, you know, the truth is, I don't think too much about it. I don't. But the thing is that, for instance, Tom Cruise. Yes. He can sort of never meet a normal person anymore, because everybody's going to be, oh, he's Tom Cruise. I have to sort of relate to that, because he can never get like a naked reaction from a person anymore. Oh, you mean like a reaction that where someone's never seen or, you know. Exactly. And yeah, that's, I guess, the life of a movie star. Yeah. You can't, uh, you know, there's also the, whenever you meet anyone who's, famous on any level there's also everything you've ever heard about them or read about them yes. there's a lot that goes into that mm. the only chance tom cruise has to really be is to go to some sort of culture you know in africa or somewhere that's never you know see seen his movies and such or other famous people that he hasn't met before yeah But I'm thinking for him to sort of, if he wants to develop his skills as an actor, copying is, I would assume that that's a great tool to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, the truth is, he could probably go to a good acting class or a good improv class. And uh, at some point, the Tom Cruise aspect of it would, would melt away. Yeah. I don't know that the first class or two would be very productive for him. But after that, I think it would. Is he a good actor, by the way? Tom Cruise? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's an excellent actor, and I think he's the best movie star that America has put out in, what, the last 30 years or so? 
That's a, 20 years, yeah. yeah. And do you think he's interested in other people? You know, I'm, I met him once, and he seemed very interested in me. He was very kind and thoughtful, you know. I don't know him, really. I've been, but I know people who are friends with him and know him who aren't Scientologists, mm -hmm. who say very nice things about him. And I know as an actor, I very much enjoy him, and I can sort of separate his personal stuff. He's a great movie star. He's the, he's the best movie star that we have. I heard you talk about what a comedian needs to sort of be successful uh -huh. on uh, Pete Holmes' uh, podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. On that note... What would you say that it takes? To be a great comedian? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, actually. I don't. I don't know that I'm a great comedian. I know I have moments of greatness, but I don't know that I'm consistently great. I think the one thing you need is to be funny. I don't know anything else that you necessarily... You know, it's like... um I don't know everything. I, I don't know what the rules, you know, what rules you have to follow. I can just know that someone's going about it the wrong way. And I can see when someone's going about it the right way. It just hits me. I would say that there's a vulnerability. I would say vulnerability is a great asset. It's, I mean, these are things that are not the rules. Maybe you're not vulnerable, but you can be extraordinarily funny. But vulnerability is magnificent low status is magnificent those are things that i think are natural for an audience they root for the underdog and um if you're vulnerable the, the man who i think is the greatest stand-up of all time richard Pryor, was incredibly vulnerable vulnerability is fantastic i find that a lot of today's comedians not necessarily the ones that i think are great But a lot of them are full of bravado. A lot of one, the ones that you see on TV that have specials and such, just full of bravado. It's almost like bullies being allowed to do stand-up. There is a cliche. I'm not sure that it, it's a cliche because it's true, but that you can't be too good-looking when you're... Well, no. I mean, people who are good-looking are doing well in stand-up, but... Which ones? Oh, I don't know. You have to name names, but there <laughs> yeah, are people. Well, who's? I think Sarah Silverman's yeah, wonderful, and she's yeah. about as good looking as they get. Yeah, she's so beautiful. But there's there's a lot of other. I see meet good looking people. Yeah, but also I find that if there's a slight flaw, like Amy Schumer, I think is a beautiful woman, but she's not beautiful in in the classic way where you you know everyone would fall over themselves but i think she's beautiful but there's a character aspect to her louis ck i think he's a handsome man but he's not handsome in your classic way there's something i don't want to say off but not they're not classically beautiful or handsome so mm -hmm. i think that having um some aspect of a character to your face is good Likeability, I would say. Or well, likeability is important too, but some people who I find inherently unlikable are, are successful comedians. 
And Such no, as? I'm not going to say names. I, <laughs> I can't think of them offhand. But actually, I just was watching one last night. It's a fellow that I like well enough. We're not really friends. We're acquaintances. But I was watching him last night. And I just thought, how the hell is this guy? He's so inherently unlikable. How is he on TV? Eh? I'm sorry that you had to see that. I am too. <laughs> I would have liked to have erased that from my mind, but it's there. Yeah. Now I'm going back to your childhood again. But mm. but you said that you, uh, I mean, with your heart condition and, and so forth, you had to quit doing sports and so forth, and you were sort of afraid that you would die all the time? Yeah. I was, I was a fear of death is a great motivator for comedy. That helped me. It also helped me as a person. To be that vulnerable helps you artistically, no matter what you do. And, and that anxiety helps you comedically. I'm not saying I want it, but it helped me. Are you still afraid of death? I don't. I mean, I think about it sometimes, as I imagine anyone does. I don't want to die, but I, it doesn't obsess me as it did as a younger man. As a young man, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with nuclear war. I was obsessed with all that stuff. You know, I have children now. I'm a man. So I've got things to do. So I don't really think about that. I meditate. I just think about peace and tranquility. Tranquility, I don't think about... I'm not in denial of things that go on, like I said, about not having much interest in policy. But to me, it's just noise. Like, I think that you could... Although I read numerous newspapers every day, And I'm on the internet reading what I think are valuable sites as opposed to crap. But I could do without all that and live a pretty wonderful life. I really believe that it's my responsibility to vote for president and for mayor and for all these different things. It's a responsibility as being part of a community. But, boy, a lot of it is just, to me, most of it's noise. So I look at sitting around thinking about death as also noise. And I'm alive. I got things to do. Yeah. I don't think about death at all. Then why would you bring it up? <laughs> Because I was curious about how it would affect you as a person. Right. Socially. Well, but you have to, I mean, like as a kid, like I said, you know, as a teenager and a young, probably into my 20s. Man, if there ever was a saying that makes sense, youth is wasted on the youth. I wouldn't want to go back to my youth unless I knew what I knew now. Like that would, I wouldn't want to at all. Because to go through that learning thing, the only thing that's exciting about youth to me is the world of possibilities. Yeah. Like you're thinking anything can happen. And then as you get older... You know anything can happen, but you're more, I don't want to say realistic, because I love dreams, and I, I still have dreams, and I still have desires, but you understand how that works more. I mean, literally, you have no idea what's going to happen. I know what happened. <laughs> Did you have confidence growing up? I was a, a weird one, because I was vulnerable, scared, And supremely confident. Weird combination. Yeah, that's really strange. Really, really co weird combination. I was probably the most popular kid in my high school. Uh -huh. And um, even though I thought I might die at any moment. Perhaps yeah, that's... I'm always... People have told me about how confident I was, who I came across in my 20s and such. Very confident. 
Did you get laid early and so forth? No, I didn't. I didn't lose my virginity until I was 20. Okay. Had lots of girlfriends. Women liked me, or girls liked me, I guess back then you call them girls. But um, no, I was supremely confident. I don't understand the combination. And, you know, the truth is, I don't like analyzing it. Like, I don't like analyzing comedy. I don't like analyzing my life. I realize that logic has so far less to do with the world than I thought. I always used to just apply logic to things. And, well, that should make sense. And nothing makes sense. Is it the same with your career in a way? Have you sort of been aiming towards stuff or has it just happened? I, the aiming and the goals. I mean, I have goals in terms of, you know, I have goals. But um, now you realize... When you give up the aspirations of fame and all you worry about is being good, for me, that's when my career took off. When all it was about was being good, nothing more, nothing less, and then whoosh, it took off. It's in my 30s. Because I remember when I first started, I was 20, I thought, oh, I'll be famous in a year or two. And then I thought, oh, no, no, I guess late 20s, 27 And then I thought early 30s. And then when I hit early 30s, I just went, whenever. And I go, just be great. Not that I didn't want to be great before that, but there was the fame and the great. When the great was the sole focus, it took off. But what was your focus during those years? I mean, the, the, Those years? Yeah. Oh, it was equal about fame as it was being funny. Funny came easier to me than the fame. Yeah. So I was obsessed about both, and I applied logic to fame. Well, if you do this, this will happen. Whereas there are no rules. Mm -hmm. I learned that. Yeah. The only rule is be great. And I firmly believe that if you're great, if you're really great, and you're functioning as a human being, you cannot be denied. It will happen for you if you have those two things. Some people who are great who have an inability to function, then it's more luck or more how much of a genius are you actually. But I know that luck has a lot to do with it too. See, to me, luck, if you really are great and you focus on that and you're a decent human being, I believe luck has, actually I don't want to even use the word luck. You're going to be successful. Whether you're going to be successful early or late, That's the randomness of it all. I've heard you talk about luck earlier as well. And I'm, I won't say that I'm provoked by it, but mm. uh, well, a little bit, perhaps. I love that you're provoked by it. Go ahead. Well, a little bit, because I would say that I have never met or I, I, I have never interviewed a person that it's sort of, they have had either talent or drive. Oh, here's why luck, by the way, I am not, exaggerating when I say this. I am extraordinarily lucky. I am lucky that my drive, my talent, and all these things came together and it worked out for me to be successful. It's luck. Luck is the bottom line. Because, here's why my theory behind it, so many untalented, not so many, but a good deal of very uh, of, uh, supremely untalented people who are either charismatic or whatever, have become successful. Luck. Charisma. Though. Yeah, but some aren't charismatic. I find that luck, it's, it's, it's really randomness, I feel. 
And, you know, I mentioned, I was just thinking about this. I mentioned how if you're can function as a person, a lot of people also are not nice people and they become successful, which to me, if you're a nice person and you're kind to others, wouldn't you think that you would, people would want to work with you more, that things would have, but it's all about luck. There's, because there's so many ingredients into success. A lot of times people making the decisions, the executives, some executives I know are brilliant people who can spot talent. And then there's other executives, and I'd say the majority, and I'm talking about movie, television, the world of stand-up, who don't know talent if it punched them in the face. Really. So to make it through that crap, it's a lot of luck. Look, you let let here I'll even throw it in with war. So let's say you're a supreme soldier. You're a supreme soldier and you go into battle. If you come out of that battle, surely your talent and as a soldier and all that has a great deal to do with your surviving, but there's also a great deal of luck. Luck that there's not a guy in the bushes who's got you in his crosshairs. Luck has everything to do with everything. And luck is random and luck is, yeah, there's too much crap out there to not take into account luck. If luck actually exists, mm-hmm. then you could exchange the term with God. <laughs> well, I do believe in a higher power. I don't necessarily believe in God as other people believe in God, but I do believe in some higher power, mm-hmm. higher than me. I see it when I look and I see trees. That's I see higher power. Mm-hmm. When I look at the sky, when I feel a breeze, I, 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 I know there's a higher power of some sort. Don't know what that is. See, I um, I'm Jewish, but I look at that more culturally than it's a Jewish God. I don't know what God is. I don't know. And yes, maybe the point I'm making when I say luck, and I say I believe in God, but I don't know what God it is, is I'm saying I'm a man, just a, a humble man. I don't know the answers. Mm. I don't know who killed Kennedy. You know, I don't know the answers to anything. So I'm just making my way through the world the best I can, not knowing anything. When you painted the war picture, sort of, I I, uh, I can buy luck with that. Yeah. In that scenario. But, I mean, in showbiz and so forth, Uh I'm not sure. Because I would say that it has to do with social skills and networking. Okay, of let's just say Mark Marin, yeah, who you like talking about. Well, If podcasts hadn't come along, where would he be? He'd be a grumpy stand-up comedian. Perhaps. His demeanor yeah. holds him back as a comic because he goes on stage not inherently likable, <laughs> not funny to all. And by the way, an excellent comedian. So mm. I'm not disparaging him as a comedian, but Mark makes it hard to like him outside of the universe that he's created in his podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah. So I'd say he's lucky that podcasts came along. I've known Mark for a long time, and when we were all young comedians and such, there were no podcasts, so you couldn't say to Mark, hey, Mark, you know what you all you should do? And he always heard, you should have a podcast. <laughs> so it's sort of lucky that that came along. I'm even lucky that there is show business, that there is you know, comedy and comedy, people love comedy. There's luck on so many different levels. 
I believe in luck. I really do. Yeah. I'll edit that so you say, I believe in God. <laughs> I would laugh if someone told me I heard your interview. Boy, you talk about God a lot. I would laugh. I don't take myself seriously. I take what I do seriously. Yeah. I take being a father seriously. I take my work seriously. But I don't take myself seriously. No, I know. And that has to do with, I mean, because you are so open sort of with your shortcomings. When, I have and, to be. Well, yeah. And you've been open also about your stroke and, I mean, and that. I've, well, I've got nothing to hide. What do I have to hide? I'm not sure. I'm not, <laughs> that's the best <laughs> answer you could ever give. I'm not sure. Truth is, no, I, I have nothing to hide. Maybe I've picked my nose before. Not yeah. maybe, I know I have. Yeah. But I don't do it as I'm walking down the street because people don't react kindly to that. It's not a normal thing. I don't pick my nose very often, but I have picked my nose. Have I farted? You bet I've farted. Point being is I'm a human being. I like naked ladies. <laughs> That's it. You know what I mean? I'm, I like clothed ladies. I like shadow puppets of women. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. Pot on occasion, you know, I, I don't, I lead an extraordinary life. So I like that my life is pretty gosh darn ordinary. Mm. I'm good with staying home and watching TV with my wife. I'm good at reading a book. I'm good at taking a nap. I'm good at sitting and talking with my children. That is the joy. I go home and have coffee with my friend every day. That's the joy that I have, that and my work. I don't need my life. Like, you know, when you see people living this, the movie stars going here and going there and the TV stars, and also people that have no discernible talent, they're always in the spotlight. That to me would be nauseating. I have no aspirations in that way at all. So I just put it out there, man. The fact that you are so open, does it have any... Uh, Consequences? Yeah. Or, yeah, I yeah. can be hurt. I can be hurt. I can be hurt in the moment by an audience that's not digging me, but that goes away. But in terms of friends and coworkers and acquaintances, yeah, I can be hurt. I can be hurt. Yeah, that's all. By making yourself open and vulnerable, I have the ability to be hurt. Not by taking myself seriously, but more... Surprise and shock that someone could be hurtful or not kind or thoughtless. So that's that's really my Achilles heel is yeah. that I'm actually I can be hurt. Where do you put that hurt? What do you do? I, with I, it? I put it into comedy. I have to sit with it as opposed to eating a piece of cake. You know, I used to eat a piece of cake every time I felt hurt. Yeah. Can't do that. Because that's my addiction, you know, the same way an alcoholic, if they felt... Some, see, the thing that's also interesting about being an addict is that what people don't understand is that good or bad, any feelings cause you to go to your thing. So I remember, I made this movie, I remember, I made this movie called I Want Someone to Eat Cheese With, and a lot of it was about addiction, it was a character study about addiction, and I had to cut scenes from the movie of my character eating when good things were, would happen because the audience didn't dig it. They were confused by yeah. it. And that's the thing about addiction that people don't understand. It's not just the dark moments. It's feeling anything, you know, celebrating. But I, I use that mostly that pain will come out in my comedy. 
Another thing that I've sort of been asking people about lately is why complement weighs a, a gram. I'm, I'm going to use metric. Okay, I know grams. <laughs> yeah, okay. whereas uh, something disrespectful... Uh, weighs a lot more? Weighs a ton, yeah. Well, I can do it from a comed- stand-up comedian standpoint. You can have a great set, and the audience is loving you, but front row in the middle... Someone is not happy at all, and you'll notice. Yeah. And you go right to them. But I have to say, if the audience was hating me and somebody was loving me in the middle, I would also notice that and go to that and play up that. Maybe it's just you just notice what's different. And Lord knows our life is filled with far more insults than compliments. So I don't know why that is. I don't. I mean... I just know that it's the nature of a comedian. There's a um, a joke about it where a woman comes up to the a comedian and says, I saw you last night. You were so amazing. I want to make love to you. I want to do things to you. And she's beautiful. And she wants to do things. And she tells him, anything you want and things you've never had done, it's going to be the greatest night of sex of your of your life. And the comedian asks, Did you see the first show or the second show? Because he knows if it's the show that he didn't think was good, he'll think there's something wrong with her and not want to be with her. I'm explaining the joke, and you chuckled at it, but I don't know how it will translate in Sweden, so I wanted to explain it. No, it's one of those jokes, by the way, that audiences don't always understand. Yeah. I know it. But I'm also like that. I would like to become a person that takes a compliment seriously or... Well, by the way, you're saying this. Success and failure are both equal lies. They are. You're never as successful as you think, and you're never as much of a failure as you think. That's really the the joke of it all. To believe the hype one way or another is foolish. But I do agree with your beginning premise, which is that people are more likely to believe the negative than they are the positive. But they're both full of crap. We can transfer this to a, something cool that, that you said about numbers, that fuck the numbers, just do a good show. When you were talking about network television, I think. Right. I would assume that if you're focusing on doing something great, mm-hmm. audience will come, right? No. They won't. Maybe not. There's no guarantee. All right. You could do something crappy and the audience will come. To me, you just have to worry about doing what you do and being great. And whether you're a hit Whether you're a hit now or a hit in 10 years, just keep focusing on what you do and just worry about being great. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll all figure it itself out. I wonder if there's somebody who exists, and I'll just use the word, I just say comedically, who's a great stand-up, who never made it, who only focused on being great and had reasonable social skills. I don't think so. No. I don't think so. I've been doing this for 33 years, and I know some comics that are flummoxed that they haven't become successful, but I could tell them why they haven't become successful. They're getting their own way. Yeah. So I don't remember what the, <laughs> what the question was. But, you know, just worrying about being great is is what we were talking about. That is really your responsibility. But it may not hit right away. And you may make three great movies and the third ones everyone loves. And then, by the way, once you hit your other stuff that you worried about being great becomes rediscovered. It's like an author whose fourth book may not even be their best, but it's the one that hit people rediscover their first three books or, you know, I'm just using those numbers. So your work work will be discovered when you have that hit. A hit changes everything. For instance, we are both, I think, fans of uh, the TV series Girls. I was a fan of Girls. I I used to love Girls. And then I... What happened? This past season, a couple seasons, but especially this past season... I didn't enjoy it. Okay. I could sit with an episode and point out things about the characters and the direction. It kind of, to me, lost its footing and its voice. The characters didn't seem to have enough growth for me. Okay. That's all. I really respect Lena Dunham. And when I say I don't like the show... I don't think it's terrible. I think it's still really good. I'm just saying for me to take the time to watch it, it doesn't do it for me anymore. But I do understand people digging it. I totally get that. But, you know, sometimes shows along the way or, you know, they like even watching a movie, three quarters of the movie you can be in love with. And then the ending just sells you out or doesn't do it. It's hard to do all this. stuff. Yeah, I know. So... But I'm not into girls the way I was. But what was your reason for bringing up girls? Yeah, because I was, it doesn't really have a big audience, right? It's not, I mean... You know, I don't really know the numbers, but here's what it I has. I think it is. Like, the, here, but here's what it has. There's, you have to understand something that's really important. So she put out good work. Her first film, the show, I still think the show, even though I'm not digging it, is really good work. But she has made herself, by doing this good work... She is her audience is made up of people who will go see her, who will buy her books. And that's a lot of people, even though the sheer numbers aren't what, let's say, the Goldbergs get. But if I put out a book, I don't know necessarily that the people that love the Goldbergs are going to go run behind everything that I do. But everyone who watches Girls will run behind everything Lena does. So there's a different difference in terms of like um the show parks and recreation is another example didn't get high ratings when it was on decent ratings but the people that love that show and love community is another example they love those characters so much that those people 
even though it's not the big numbers of, let's say, um, two and a half men or Big Bang Theory, their viewers are so much more loyal and pay attention so much more yeah. to what the people on that show are doing. So sometimes it's not the sheer numbers, but what kind of people are watching and digging what you do. Girls had 680,000 viewers. 680,000 viewers yeah. in, in a certain episode or? Season four premiere. Yeah, but you have to understand a couple things. You can't take that because HBO shows it over and over. And also people watch it on HBO now. So what they do in their one episode and also people with their DVRs, there's so many more people watching it in all sorts of, you know, of ways. Course, yeah. yeah. I was curious, you being a successful comedian and so forth, and yeah. you've been in the game for a long time. Would yes. you say that today is a good time to be a comedian in general? Is it a good climate? Yeah, it's a great climate for being a comedian. There are certain areas that I avoid. Like, I, I don't think I would ever... Well, I shouldn't say that if they really offered me a big check. But in general, I'd much rather speak at a college and have Q&A than I would to perform stand-up at, at a college because I find that the um, there's a political correctness that just runs amok. Even if you say something random, that's why I'm not on Twitter. Twitter is such, although I'm going to be on Twitter today, actually today I'm taking over, it's part of the leading up to her HBO special, I'm taking over Tig Notaro's account today. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll be on Twitter for one day, but I'm not on Twitter anymore. I just... People are so easily offended. All right. So on my Instagram account, I put up a picture that I saw. I was in Chicago on Michigan Avenue of two ladies playing music. One was on violin. One, the other one, they both were on violins. And they had a big sign that said, helping orphans in Mexico. And people were dropping cash in. So I took a picture of it. I liked the picture. And I just wrote, and it was a joke. And it was a mild joke. Who isn't? You know? Yeah. Well, majority of people who responded to it were got the joke, were funny, wasn't it? But there were two people who kind of attacked me for not knowing more about orphans in Mexico. You know, they didn't understand the joke, and it was a joke. Like, who isn't? Well, lots of people aren't, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And it was nice to these ladies. But who isn't was like, you know, as if on every street corner there's someone playing music helping orphans in Mexico. And so when you put things out, that's what you get. And so it's a bad time in terms of all your irreverence and all the comments that you make should just be on stage. And even then, now the world has changed. You can't, I experiment because I know in my heart, I'm not going to say something racist I'm not going to be against women, against anyone. That I'm not going to say something stupid. Probably. Now, in my personal life, I know I'm going to say something stupid. I know there's going to be a conversation, I'm going to say something stupid. But when I'm on stage, I improvise, which is risky on a lot of levels. But I don't care about, I mean, I don't want people to have their cell phones. I had a show in New York where I asked them all to turn it off just because it's just an invasion of it's a private moment uh, in a public setting. But 
you know, I don't understand the people recording things on their phones anyhow. But the way the internet works and the way technology works, it's a difficult time to really feel free as a comedian. But I still do. So I don't feel it's changed that much. I think it's a good time to be a comedian, but it's certainly more, here's the word, precarious. It's more of a precarious time, but it's a fun time. And the new media climate, I mean, every comedian has a podcast, almost. Right, I don't anymore. I stopped mine. Yeah, well, yeah. why is that? Because I'm busy doing too many other things okay. right now. I still have my show at Largo, but I don't uh, put out the It's just another thing for me to worry about. And I, in order, here's the thing. Ah, I can tell you this. I've done a lot of good work over the years. Moments of greatness. All my films have moments of greatness. But I've not done enough great work. Like really consistently great work. And so in order to do great work, you have to sort of knock away things and focus on... Because, you know, I'm a comedian. I'm an actor. I'm a writer. I'm a director. I'm a producer. I don't even know what I'm leaving out. Uh, Conversate, podcast. I mean, there's like, a, I do a lot of things. Well, I sort of have to knock back some of those mm. and really focus. And right now I'm focused on being a as as good an actor as I can and as good a stand-up as I can and as good producer and director, but of my own things that all sort of tie in, except for maybe the stand-up, although... The stand-up, working as a stand-up makes me a better actor and a better improviser. But I had to knock away things, and that was one of the ones that went. I enjoyed it, so I'm sad it had to go, but it had to go. But you still do the show. You still do Ben right. Foles. I, 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 yes, I have Ben Foles coming up. Yes, I still do the show, because that's my one big show a month that I do. But why my, don't you put it out Because that, a podcast? Because I have to record commercials. Because I have to promote it. I have to do all these other things okay. that all those things chip away at my ability to do something great. Isn't that what Airwolf is for? Well, they put it out, but they don't know. They don't take care of that. They should. Well, maybe they should, but they don't. They're also the ones that give me my commercials to record. I've asked for them way in advance, and I don't get them in advance. I get them the day. But Airwolf is a fine company for someone who doesn't have a hit TV show. For me, I'd be learning lines for a scene I'm about to do, and my assistant would say, you know, you need to record these. Yeah. It just takes me out of it. Yeah, of course. So I, I can't. I aspire to make some great movies. I aspire to make some great television, and I aspire to be a great stand-up comedian. So to do that, I can't be a great podcaster. I would love to do it for you. Everything around it. Everything around? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's an offer. Well, thank you. Think about it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. We were talking about the climate for comedians. Everybody has a podcast except you. And you can sort of make a decent sort of TV show and put it out on, on the internet and so forth. Yes. What does that do with comedy? You know what it really does when it really comes down to it? It gives young people, anyone for that matter, but young people especially, if they're filming a web series or something like that, even on their own with friends, to learn. You learn. And it puts it in their hands to put it up. They don't need a distributor. So even if they get 5,000 views on their YouTube show, that's great. 5,000 people are watching this, and you get to learn 
what it's like to be in a scene on camera. You watch these things, you're writing, all of that. So I think it's fantastic in terms of learning. In terms of the final product for people, I think that if you're a big star and you choose to go an alternative way, I also find that fascinating. Louis C.K. has done that over and over. We live in a world where now Netflix is considered the norm. So that's pretty gosh darn great, if you ask me. The only thing that's really screwy right now is the music industry. And with the music industry, comedians' albums. Kind of all worthless now. They don't sell. They don't move. And you put them up on, on, on iTunes and all that. But you can put it up independently on iTunes, you know. It's still digital downloads. By the way, it's like reading a book on your um, Kindle. I'm all for it because people are reading. I'm all for digital downloads because people are listening. But there's something to be said for the concreteness of holding even a CD or an album. I, 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 I buy record albums, you know, yeah. vinyl, or an actual book. There's something about that that's so much more tangible. Like a person can collect records. Can you collect digital downloads? You have them, but is that something you can... I don't know what that is. So I understand that that's the medium. That's how things are brought about. But like I write all my movies and everything I write. I write it initially longhand. And then I have uh, my assistant type it into whatever, either Final Draft, Word, whatever. And then I do the rewrites on the computer. Okay. Yeah. We're just, I'm just talking about being tangible. I mean, look, we ended yeah. up, I went on a tangent. Yeah. The look on your face was fantastic. I Thank you. It. Thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to work on that. No, but I was, I should do notes, but I don't. Uh-huh. I don't, when I do my show at Largo, I have no notes. I have no, very little preparation. Very little. It's just, if you know, the real premise of it is, I mean, surely myself and my guest are conscious that there's an audience there, but it's like... If we were at lunch, this is what what we'd be discussing. I've been curious about that because I haven't been able to see it live. Is there much stuff taken out? The only things in terms of the podcast that are taken out are what the guest says. I regret saying that. Take it out. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm not a news source. No. I have no. I want my guests to be happy. So sometimes people will say things that are insulting to somebody, or. Um, that they're just not comfortable with. And so we would always take that out. Yeah. Here, here. Likewise. Yeah. Well, I'm all good with whatever I say. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's why I can go on stage with confidence and improvise. I don't feel that I'm going to, you know. By the way, like I said, there doesn't mean there aren't moments of I regret saying that. And like I said, also, when I'm at a party and I walk around talking to people, I play it out in my head when I get home. That's why I, don't, I love a good dinner party. Regular parties, they're just... Because you can't... I'm just full of regret. If, I, if I'm speaking, I'm full of regret. I've enjoyed myself with you today, so I'm, I'm good. Thank you, sir. Sure. I just did five podcasts in front of an audience in Sweden. Mm. And I had like two a week, so it was pretty intense. Mm. 
I think I've, I forgot to bring a pen up there to make notes. To remind un- yourself. Yeah, exactly. Up until yeah, the last time. Yeah, I have to say time. that that's probably <laughs> something that it might be good to do to, when someone was talking about something. But like I said, I want it to be like being at lunch, and at lunch I'm not going to yeah. take notes. No, and the thing with your podcast is that it's actually what it's called. It's a conversation. Yeah, conversation it's not yeah. a, an interview. It's a conversation. No, it's a conversation, exactly. So when people will, you know, like I said, you know, noticing the negative and the positive, people love it. But also a lot of people, you know, I, I've, I've heard that uh, people think I interrupt too much, I talk too much. Well, that's who I am, and it's a conversation. Certainly, if CNN hired me, my producers at CNN would have some issues with my interviewing style. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's not what I do. And that's also why I eliminated it from my thing. I have other things to do. A question back to money. What do you spend money on? Record albums. Yes. But that's camera a- equipment. Yeah. I, I I'm very much into photography. Yeah. I buy lenses. Pretty much holding off now. Oh yeah. Um Are you a Leica guy? What Leica guy, yes. Yeah. I, I I use Leica. Yeah. And Sony. I work for Sony. Sony Studios do the Goldbergs. So I get discounts and gifts. That's the RX100. Yeah. I don't know which version of it it is. That's a great camera. That's the newest one, I think. Oh, that's the newest one. I hope so. It's a great camera. Thank you. Great camera. Yeah. Uh, the RX100 is a wonderful pocket camera. So I camera equipment. I, I shoot film, so I spend money on film. I have been buying too many guitars as of lately. Uh-huh, okay. So I'm selling a couple. I uh, know all about guitar and gear for whatever but i and certainly i'm influenced by people i dig who like mike bloomfield is probably my favorite rock guitarist and he mostly played a telecaster and i also love you know like west montgomery and he played um you know a, a gibson l5 i think is what it is i have a, i have a thing called an es335 which is what eric clapton played when he was with cream But I don't have his. Okay. I have a nice one. Yeah. I'm not a collector of guitars. All right. I'm not a collector of cameras. What I buy, I want to use. Okay, so you do actually play your guitars. I do, but I play them only at home. I do not play them for the public. I consider myself learning. Also, I've never really shown anybody any of my pictures. No, I was curious about that. Well, if I could have learned stand-up comedy for my first 10 years and had i mean now it might be fun to see me year five i'd be nauseous from it it just take as an artist you need to fail and so i look at the majority of guitar playing i'm doing as something horrible for others and i look at the pictures that i've taken you know i've taken thousands and thousands of pictures I probably have about a dozen great ones where you go, wow, but that's out of thousands. But anyhow, that's what I spend my money on, those things. In terms of for myself, raising children, very expensive. It is, yes. A wife, very expensive. Okay, So yeah. She doesn't work? She does, but doesn't. She's a casting director, and she works on occasion But we're at a point now where I have told her, and she's listened to me, that it's less of something she's really passionate about, don't bother. 
You know, sometimes like she'd be on projects and she'd complain about a producer or somebody or the studio. And I go, you don't need to do something that's going to cause you any anguish or anxiety. But also raising my children, that's a harder job than what I do. Speak about children. Have you been the father that you wanted to be? Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, I always think I could be a better father, but the love I have for my children and the love that I have for me. I'm trying to raise young men, thoughtful young men. It's the thoughtful men. I think I'm doing it. I'm very proud of my boys. Very proud. They're 15 and 19. Very proud of them. So I've been the father that I want to be. I could sit and nitpick and go, I wish I did that. I wish I did that. And I have very few regrets. But I'm more proud of that than... Pretty much anything in my life. Yeah. Me as a father. Yeah. Have you been a better father than you had? A no. Father? no. I had a great father. Yeah. My father was a loving, wonderful man. Loved my dad. He passed away a couple years ago. Yeah, he was That's a great so dad. He was a great dad. He was a great grandfather to my kids. He was fantastic. Good man. Maybe that's where your confidence comes from. No, I'm, I've gotten things from... My dad taught me don't believe the hype. My dad was very humble. He wasn't supremely confident. He wasn't lacking in confidence. He was a functioning person. But I would put it at normal, mm. his confidence level. And my mother taught me not to take no when I wasn't... Not to accept no if I thought no was inappropriate. And so my mother's taught me that, and my dad taught me not to believe the hype, to be a regular person. Yeah. And it seems to have been working out great. It seems to have been working out great. Yeah. Yeah. What do you have planned ahead work-wise? In about a week, I'm about to start filming The Goldbergs. I'm developing a cop miniseries for Netflix. Okay. Kind of like uh, Columbo, and I'm that guy. Uh Uh-huh. So I got that, that. Is that going to happen? If I write it, okay, it will happen. It's already been, it's not like a random thing. It's Netflix has said yes. Okay. So, and you've got but, money but, from them. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully this coming summer, I'll shoot it. It'll be like a 90-minute movie. Okay. That I'll do hopefully every summer on hiatus from the Goldbergs. All right. And then I'll be doing a stand-up special at some point. Yeah, you know, you've been talking about that for a really long time. Yeah, because <laughs> right now in the world of stand-up specials, as I told you, I, I didn't watch the whole thing last night. Of It was on Netflix. I was like, ugh, this is terrible. When I was younger, in terms of stand-up on television, a special, you were either on Showtime or HBO, and then some people were on Evening at the Improv. And I say Evening at the Improv, and there was another show called Night Flight, That was on cable. But the point being is, for the most part, if you were on, if you had an hour-long comedy special, let's even leave it at just hour-long, you were special, and it was special, and it was unique. There are kids who I've never heard of, and that doesn't mean they're not legit, but everyone's got a special. It's like having a podcast, and they're self-produced specials, so... I feel like I should call my special the What's So Special About Me special. But I was talking with Louis C.K. about it because I was kind of down about it. And it goes with what I was telling you. Just be great. Just make a great special yeah. and let it live its life. You can't worry that 
There's 900 crappy ones. It just means it's going to be more difficult for someone to find my special because there's so many other ones. Mm. There's so much noise. That's what I'm saying. There's so much noise that it's hard to find great stuff. And I'm assuming if I make another special that it's going to be great with the focus that I have. Yeah. I'm assuming. I've made a good special, which I thought made a great album. The special itself I didn't dig as much. didn't work as a special as much. It was good. It might be even very good, I might say. Maybe. <laughs> but it was definitely good. But the album that came from it, I, was, I thought was great. It sold eight copies. Yeah. It was just not, you know what I mean? So it's just hard to be found, even when you are a TV star and a known commodity. It's still, unless you're, you know, one of the top five people working, I'm not even talking talent-wise, although I do love Amy Schumer. I do love Louis C.K. I think there's some great comics that are supremely popular. But unless you're one of them, it's hard to get noticed with a stand-up special. Mm. So it's like, I almost did like, you know, they have the saying, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there, does, you know, whatever the thing is, you know. Does it make a sound? Yeah. yeah. So I feel like comedy specials now are like, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, does, does it really matter? So I've been fighting that with myself, the whole idea of it. But I have, I've got so many things that I'm working on that I want people to hear or at least be out there. Maybe they'll rediscover it, what have you, that I think I have to do one. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah. You so if I do one, I'll shoot it next, probably June or July. Okay. Yeah. Louis C.K. sort of, at least in Sweden, he brought a new, he sort of reinvented the game. With the downloads, you mean? No, I mean with how you work with a special that you just sort of tour for a year or and then you sort of record it and then you throw everything away. Yeah, but I don't know that he does that anymore. Okay. Or I think he'll take longer time in between now. All right, but comedians in Sweden were very impressed by that anyway. Well, yeah, that, it's impressive to do a whole new thing. With me, it's always a whole new thing because yeah. that's what I'm doing. So. I was thinking about that. How yeah, would it's you, always a whole yeah. new thing. I don't, I don't like sitting with you right now. There's some things I'm talking about, but who knows if they'll even be in my special? I don't know. I like developing things and then I do them. But if I have a classic story, when I say classic, I mean I know it's a good, solid story, and I've told it before. I'll tell it again. A good story is fun, but in general, the whole process of it, it's mostly improvised. By the way, did you make any money from doing a podcast? Yes. Substantial amount or? For what it's worth, I, I made into six figures. Okay, that sounds good. But I, I split the money with um, the guy who owns Largo, who, um, yeah. But, you know, I didn't ever do it for the money. And I know people say that. But I make a good living, uh, like... That money would mean so much if only I did the podcast. So it was like nice free money. It came in handy. Yeah. I could say that my podcast after taxes and splitting it with my producer partner, you know, paid for maybe a year of one of my kids' schools for private <laughs> yeah. school. They used to both go to private school. So, you know, it was good that way. But not something that I need, you know, so. But it was profitable. Also, and also, initially, extremely popular. Yeah. I just, I mean, crazy popular. 
but I didn't put them out consistent enough. And there was, you know, you need, you know, like Mark Marin has it down. He puts out two a week. You have to on a minimum level to really have a podcast that works. Put one out weekly. Got it. Just a, and I did mine mostly every two weeks. Yeah. People are like, is that new? What's this? It wasn't consistent. So it started out with a bang. And I'm not going to say close with a whimper. It did fine. But it wasn't what it was. You say that to a person who does uh, this podcast bi-weekly as well. Oh, you do yours bi-weekly? Yeah. But you'd be much more popular if you did it weekly. Yeah, I know. But then... I'm I, just saying to you that yeah, that's, you know... Yeah, yeah I, I know that that's a rule that you have to follow. Unless you're somebody who's so extraordinarily famous and you put out three podcasts a year and people can look forward to that, you got to put it out weekly. And maybe even twice a week like Mark Marin. Mm. That has a lot to do with his, you know, his whole life. I know he does his TV show, which came from the podcast and is about him as a fictional version of himself doing the podcast. But that's his life. And I think, well, that's the point. To really be super successful, you have to pick what you do, focus, and put all your energy into it. And that's why I've stopped, because really, the, the show I do at Largo, the only difficult part of that is getting someone to do it. I'm about to hire a booker, because I can't do that anymore, mm. especially going to the Goldbergs. But me showing up for a show with somebody I respect to sit and talk with them, and I do like a, people don't know this, but I do like a 15-minute stand-up set, then I bring out my guest. That's so no skin off my back. That's what I do. So that's really, you know. You didn't mention that before when I asked you what was taken out from the... Oh, yeah. Uh, um, I do stand up up front and yeah. that, those are, that's taken out because yeah. that's not part of the conversation. No, but uh, yeah, I feel uh, a little dirty now that you lied to me. <laughs> Would you like to recommend anything? Broadchurch, TV show Broadchurch. I love that. No, I, there's nothing I want to recommend. I got nothing to plug. I got nothing to recommend. There's lots of good stuff out there. Find it. Go to your local bookstore. Go the, through Netflix. Go through... Uh, you don't do the book club anymore. I don't have to, That I had to go to. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Because I, I have to pick and choose. Of course. I love doing the book club. But the purpose of the book club, for example, was to get people to go into book soup. I said to them, if, if, if you sell 35 books of whatever I've chosen and 10 people show up, that's a successful book club because you sold 35 books, even if five people show up. Yeah, yeah. Sure. One, I actually don't care. The purpose was to help Book Soup sell books, but you have to cut things. You know, because remember also, I'm talking about the things I have to do for myself, but that also includes being a father, being a husband, being a good human being can only do so much. I want to do everything. That's why I don't play guitar publicly. I can't be good enough, fast enough to ever, you know, play. I mean, look, maybe I think it might be kind of sweet if I play the guitar, the ukulele, and I'm doing stand-up in my 80s. That might be fine, you know, sing a little ditty. But right now it would only be annoying. And as far as my photography, I will someday release pictures and yeah. do a show or numerous shows and do a um a book i will do that 
I produced a movie, an executive produced a movie about a photographer called Finding Vivian Meyer. That seemed... I, I was saw, nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a pretty great movie. Yeah, and yeah. what a great photographer. Amazing photographer. Yeah. And I can say the movie's great because I didn't make the movie. I helped the movie get made, and I helped it get released and all that stuff. But uh, um, John Maloof and Charlie Siskel made the movie. So I, I just helped them. I, I did what I would want a producer to do, which is protect the artists. And so I protected them. And they made a great movie, which I'm really proud of. But then again, people have come to me now to make documentaries. It's not what I do. No. I have done it, but, and it wasn't on a bucket list, but it's not what I do. I can only do so much. I'm a 53-year-old man. I have to focus on what really matters to me. And you were talking earlier about you having goals, but is there something that you can talk about that you want to sort of... My goals are to keep growing and do better work than I've done. That's really my goal. I don't have anything more than that. Hopefully this... I'm hoping the show I do for Netflix is great. I'm hoping the comedy special I do is great. I'm hoping the season of the Goldbergs is great. If... We do another season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a possibility. Not necessarily a strong one, but I would hope that that would be great and be joyful and all that. So for me, it's just about doing great work and being a, a great person. It doesn't seem that you have much free time. No, that's why. By the way, two reasons. The compliment reason that I'm here is I listened to your other podcast and I thought you were very good. Oh, thank you. Um, but that was secondary to the fact that you're from Sweden uh -huh. because I use Sweden as a non sequitur all the uh -huh. time. Okay. My representation, when they sent this to me, they had to write, this is real. Cause I'll say, you know, in Sweden, this, or young people love me in Sweden or in Sweden, I mean, just using Sweden as a reference to anything. Or this book is huge in Sweden. Or yeah. I say Sweden all the time. So Sweden got my curiosity. Like if you were from Kansas City and you were visiting, we wouldn't be talking. The fact you're from Sweden really is fantastic. I have to keep being from Sweden then. For me, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. For others, <laughs> I don't know that that's as important. But anyhow, the Swedish thing was, and I've never been to Sweden. I'd like to go to Sweden someday. Yeah, so you so yeah. you being good, like truthfully, if they said Sweden, I'd investigate, and they sent me links to your shows. If I thought you stunk, I wouldn't come just because you were Sweden. But that combo platter, you being good at your job and it being from Sweden, had to be here. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Who do you think I should interview then? See, this is the thing that I'm not good at. Like people say, who are your favorite comedians? I'm not good. You have to name somebody, and then I can go off on them. You know, to one degree or another, I don't. Uh, things don't pop in my head. Musically, I like John Coltrane. I like that's Lonnie gonna be Smart. hard. I like uh, Led Zeppelin. I like um, Radiohead. There are no names for you that's going to pop up. Well, no. I mean, you know, I'd have to like look and go. Oh, yeah. I mean, because that stuff doesn't. It's not that I'm not generous. I help lots of people. And I'm always helping people with oh, advice or whatever. Yeah. I just can't think of anybody offhand that you should interview. Yeah, I don't know who. And that's it. Good. 
not good because I won't really want to go. I'm, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to my office, which is nearby here, yeah. and I'm going to take a nap. That sounds great. It does sound great. Yeah. I would See, like, that's me living the life. Yeah. Going to go take a nap. I would like to do that as well, but I'm, I've had too much coffee this morning. Yeah, I don't drink coffee in the morning, as I mentioned, but in the afternoon, it's what gets me through the afternoon and the night, coffee. I've gotten to the point now where it affects my stand-up. I just started drinking coffee two years ago. Okay. And it has made such a difference in my stand-up. Uh-huh. Because I improvise. So my mind works much better. All right. With, uh, I have an Americano. Okay. Specifically. I don't even drink coffee. I drink an Americano every day, every afternoon. All right. Yeah. So your brain works better on caffeine then? Yes. But, but yes. how about uh, why don't you step it up to? Because I have cocaine. a natural uh, step it up to cocaine. Yeah, I've never done cocaine, and I think the initial reason I never did cocaine was I was fearful that I would die if I did cocaine. Yeah. And now it just be would be ridiculously stupid to do cocaine. I have no desire. Do I have a desire for a milkshake today? You bet I do. Won't be having that either. <laughs> but I have no desire to do no. cocaine. And I smoke pot on occasion. And on occasion might mean once every three months and mean, might mean once every three years. There's no schedule. I'm not a, I don't have a card. I'm not a regular buyer of it, you know. But on occasion, when there are no responsibilities coming up at all, it's pretty gosh darn good. It's relaxing. It's nice. Can I ask you about the thing that you said about the milkshake? I've been sober now or clean uh, for 11 years. I, I used to do uh, heaps of coke and heaps mm-hmm. of amphetamine and heaps mm-hmm. of alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's not difficult for me anymore to be clean. Or, but how is it with you? Because you mentioned the, the well, there's a couple. There's a couple of things here. First off. I imagine you still have dreams, though, that those dreams where you've done the coke or done the thing and you wake yeah. up going, oh, uh, no, oh, I didn't. Uh, Thank God. Thank yeah. God. The difficult thing about my addiction is we have to eat. You don't have to drink. You don't have to do coke. You don't have to do amphetamines. So unless you were around that constantly, I would imagine at a low point for you, Now, a really low point. If you're really tired, really depressed, and really lonely, and there's coke nearby, it might become a temptation on some level. Might. I'm not. I don't yeah, know yeah. enough. Yeah. Okay. Of course it will. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, all of us, have to eat. Yeah. I have to make sure I'm not too lonely, too tired. I'm tired right now. To be sober, for me, is a very active thing, not passive. And if you're active with it and you've done your job in terms of what you need to do to take care of yourself, it's easy. It is actually easy. Mm. That's the joke. But when you find yourself in those moments, boy, it's not easy. It's horrible. And I have, as of late, found myself in those moments and... Not been sober. Mm. So I'm making my way. And I say making my way. As of right now, I'm sober. And I see that as being going to be in that direction. Like I don't see. But I'm taking it moment to moment, man. That's that's it. But it is fucked up that I have to 
eat at minimum three times a day. I try eating five times a day because I'm diabetic, so I try and keep things even throughout the day with specifically what I eat and how I eat. So it's a constant battle in a way. Oh, it's a constant battle, one that will never leave. It's constant. And like I said, if I've slept well, if I'm exercising, if I plan my meals, if I've done everything I can do, it all falls into place. But I have to remember also the saying, progress, not perfection. Mm. Progress. But I also, being a diabetic, and it has to be a lot more perfection than I would want. Mm. Quitting uh, Coke sounds like a breeze compared to that. None of it's a, a breeze, man. No, of course. No, 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 no. In all sincerity, I'm not even going to go there. It's all, it's all, yeah. it's all a very difficult thing. But living life to its fullest, contributing, mm. that's all very difficult too. I also try and teach my children that making the right choice sometimes doesn't give you the reward, except no. that you know that you've made the right choice. Sometimes you see people making the wrong choice and they get rewarded and you can't be envious. You can't let your ego get involved with that. See, that's, by the way, I, I have two goals, real goals. And being a good father, being a great comedian, being a great father, being a great comedian, all these things fall in line with it. And that is to be, to not let my ego control me and to be thoughtful. If I do those two things, I'll go through uh, the world. Uh, it'll be, it's, it's been pretty nice. It's nice. Yeah. And I'll be the wise man that I want to be. Good luck with that. Thank you. Yes, and for all you regular listeners, I'm sorry for always bringing up Tom Cruise. I'll soon be able to replace him with Amy Schumer, I think. And how nice was Jeff Garlin? I'm so happy for that meeting. And he actually helped me taking the pictures of him. And if you are listening on the Acast app, you can actually see a selfie of me and him right now. I'm not sure that you're interested. Well, he is a fairly good looking guy. So I'm sure you will. All right, you've been listening to Varvet International with me, Christoph Triumph. Editor is Lovisa Olsson and 16 Mile Talent helped with this and many other bookings ahead. Talk to you guys in two weeks. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. It's VarvetPod in one word. Just like that. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.